Good morning, church. How are we all? Good. It's good to be here. I feel like it's been a little while, so I'm excited to uh, be here looking at all your faces. I love that at the moment we are going through this series that we are doing on the goodness of God. Uh, And we've kind of changed gears recently. Now we're looking at the goodness of God uh, as we see it in the New Testament. And we're really zooming in on Jesus and how we see God's goodness in the life of Jesus. And it it really does overflow from everything he says and everything he does. And so it's really great. Uh, And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the goodness that we see in God uh, in the interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well. And so this is uh, a great one. I'm really excited about it. Um, And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, can you flick over to John chapter 4? As Adam said, we're in our transformation trek practice on wielding the word, and he encouraged you all last week to bring along your hard copy Bible, so I'm going to be listening out to the flicking of pages. There's a little bit of that, a little bit. But before we go there, I just want to ask you all a question. Who here has ever been invited to an event where you just felt really, really grateful for an invitation? Yes, I got some hands put up here. I love a good invitation to an event. Uh, in 2012 and 2013, uh, my wife and I, uh, it was our invitation kind of period of our lives. Over a two-year period, we got invited to 16 weddings. It was, and each of those weddings had an engagement party and a bucks party and a hens party and a kitchen tea. Do they still do kitchen teas? Is that still a thing? Anyway, so many events over a two-year period. It was about 80 wedding-related events over that period. Most weekends, we were going to some type of wedding thing. You remember that, don't you, Brett? It was wild. It was absolutely wild. Emptied my bank account out buying gifts for all my friends. Um, Now I'm in my 30s, though. Uh, The invites don't flow quite so freely. Um, But if you're like me, you love an invite because often it means you get a nice free meal, which is always great, and you have a fun time. But I think an invite is also really special because it's a bit of a certificate. It's a certificate showing you that the person who invited you cares about you, that they want you there, that in this event that is going on, they want you to be a part of that. It kind of shows you that you're in their circle, that they've opened their circle up and drawn you inside of it. Uh, But it also can be a little bit hurtful when you don't get invited along as well. Like, for example, my wife gets invited to all these baby showers, and I never get invited. She went to one just yesterday, and I'm at home all by myself. Yeah, yeah. Somebody invite me to a baby shower. I've got four kids. I know how to shower a baby. (laughs) Anyway, just so you all know, I brought this up for a reason, and not just because Billy Davidson in year four didn't invite me to his ninth birthday party, and everybody went to McDonald's except for me. I mean, I've totally moved on from that. I've basically just forgotten about that whole event. It's meaningless to me. Okay, so you've obviously had enough time to turn over to John 4. That's good. Um, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that in your word there are just beautiful treasures waiting for us. Uh, where you show us just how good you are, how wonderful you are. And as we open up your word this morning and we read about your interaction with the woman at the well, may you, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your beauty and your goodness to a way, uh, in a way that just causes us to fall in love with you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Um, So just for some context for you guys, before we start kind of reading from uh, John chapter 4, just previous to this interaction in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to a religious leader called uh, Nicodemus. Uh, And it's a really cool interaction. Uh, And this religious leader is kind of engaging with Jesus kind of in good faith. And Jesus makes these kind of crazy statements. I encourage you guys to read through John chapter 3. It's an incredible part of Scripture. Uh, He says things like, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And he says things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, And and it's a great interaction that Jesus is having with this really well-educated, well-respected, powerful, connected man within the Jewish community. Uh, And yet Jesus meets this man where he is at, and he shows him that he's still, despite all of that, in desperate need of salvation. That the righteousness that he needs will not come from within, but he needs that uh, from outside of himself. And then we go to chapter 4, where we see uh, some of the Pharisees in Judea are getting angry at Jesus. He's accumulating quite a following. And so Jesus seems to just avoid uh, all of that. And he kind of passes uh, back through Samaria to get to Galilee. And so let's read together from verse 4. It says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock? Now, Uh, There is a heap to unpack here in this interaction that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. And if you don't understand some of the context there, you can really miss out on how good Jesus actually is to uh, this woman in this moment and how kindly he treats uh, her. And so I know that uh, many of you will know the kind of Samaritan-Jewish relationship this morning, but we might just uh, go through a little bit of it at a high level this morning so that we're all just on the same page. Uh, So during uh, this time when Jesus is speaking to this woman, there is a heap of racial and religious prejudice uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, Centuries earlier, the Assyrians kind of came in and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, took the ten tribes out and kind of scattered them, and then they brought in uh, a heap of foreigners to start to live within the northern kingdom. And so what happened was these kind of foreigners that came into Israel intermarried with uh, the remaining 
remaining Israelites and formed a kind of mixed race. And the Assyrians wanted to do this so that they would kind of not have uh, such a strong religious identity and wouldn't kind of rise back up against the Assyrians after this happened. Uh, And so after they uh, remarried, uh, they had this mixed race that also included some really mixed traditions uh, that were very different to the ways uh, the Jews in the kingdom of Judah would worship. Uh, And so to the Jews, these Samaritans kind of represented the downfall of their kingdom, the destruction of their nation, and represented these kind of forbidden intermarriages between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, And the the Samaritans set up kind of a rival religious system that kind of focused on God being worshipped at Mount uh, Gerizim. And so uh, there was all of that, but then there was also a lot of violence between them. Uh, They uh, went to battle with each other a number of times. I was reading some really interesting accounts this week where some of the Samaritans was, uh, would get kind of dead men's bones and throw them over into the temple to desecrate the temple. They did things like, uh, they would just antagonize each other. Uh, there was one account where they would mix rats in with the doves that would be released in the temple and then rats would run out and all the Jews would be scattering, running around, just causing chaos. Uh, they really did not like each other. Uh, the Jews also destroyed the temple that was on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans would worship. So a lot of hatred. Actually, I was reading that there was official prayers offered in the temple uh, and in some of the synagogues where they would specifically be asking the Lord not to hear the prayers of the Samaritans. So really special kind of hatred there. And it is in this context, this context that Jesus engages this woman at the well. He engages her with no prejudice, with no condescension, no animosity. He meets her where she's at and he sees her. And he makes an offer to her that is really strangely just direct and to the point. The text goes on to say, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them springs of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. You really can't do that anymore. You can't just say woman anymore. Anyway, go Jesus. Uh, Believe me, a time is coming when, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you are speaking to, I am he. I just love this interaction. Jesus acknowledges that this woman worships with really limited knowledge, but he points forward to the way that the Father wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. 
And this line of teaching really follows on from the same thing that Jesus was teaching to Nicodemus, this uh, educated religious ruler. He said, No one can enter the kingdom without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus teaches them both the same truth. He gives them both what they need. There is no prejudice in the way that he engages each of them. And this woman then declares her faith in the Messiah and her faith that when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything that they need to know. He will fill in the gaps that the Samaritans do not have. And at this confession, Jesus makes what seems like possibly the most overt confession of his identity as the Messiah. He just says, I am he. He leaves no room for guessing and he gives her an invitation. He invites her into the circle to know who he is that is speaking to her. And after this, the disciples turn up and they think, what on earth is Jesus doing speaking to this woman? And then she leaves at that time, her water jar behind. She races back into town and she tells many other Samaritans there, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And incredibly, they listen to her testimony they come to see Jesus uh, and hear what he has to say. And, and, and this is really interesting because a lot of religious leaders at the time wouldn't even go through Samaria. That would, that would take a lot of extra time on their journey uh, kind of around Samaria. They would go east of the Jordan because they didn't want to kind of pollute their feet in the Samaritan ground. But Jesus, what he does is he ends up staying with them for two days with these people, with these outcasts, with these enemies of God's people. And in the end, many Samaritans come to believe. In verse 42, they are speaking to the woman and the Samaritans say this. They say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Isn't that incredible? We see the goodness of God in Jesus as he befriends those who are deemed to be the enemies of God the enemies of God's people. He doesn't reject them like the Jews had. Instead, he gives them all an invitation. He invites them in to partake in the living water that he is offering them. You see, the truth is, is this invitation to partake in who Jesus is, to come to the table, to come to the wedding banquet is given to everyone, regardless of your background. In Matthew's gospel, um, there's, uh, there's a, a parable of the wedding banquet, uh, and, and this truth becomes really clear. In it, a king sends out invitations uh, to his son's kind of banquet, uh, and many people kind of refuse the invitation. They're busy with their own stuff, their own wealth, their own farms, uh, and they, they don't come. But in verse 9 to 10, it says this. It says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is the goodness of God. The good and the bad. No one is excluded based on their background or based on their history. And this woman at the well, she really typifies this. She makes this abundantly clear so that even we can receive that grace for ourselves. She was rejected by the Jews, but she also would have been greatly rejected within her own community. To have five husbands and be living with a man who was not her husband was absolute taboo in that day and age. 
I mean, it's likely that either her past five husbands had kind of divorced her and left her, uh, in which case she would have been seen as worthless and unlovable and unworthy to be a wife, or if, if not that, then all her past five husbands died and she would have either been seen as kind of cursed, who wants to marry that woman where everyone ends up dead, or they would have thought maybe she just killed them all. So either way, this woman's reputation in her community would have been awful, absolutely awful. This woman would not be getting invites to anything. She would know exactly how I feel. She wouldn't be going to the baby showers. She wouldn't be coming along to anything. She would have been rejected by her community. And the fact that she came out to draw water at noon, the hottest, worst time of the day, she got the worst time slot to come out and draw water, either because she was avoiding the rest of the community or they didn't want to be around her. She was alone, she was rejected, and she was oppressed. And yet Jesus, King of kings, the highest of high, God made flesh, comes down and speaks to her and engages her personally. He sees her. Because he is good. He invites her. He gives her an invitation to share in the gift of God, to show her that he is good to her. And I love it. I love it. And you know what the thing is? Uh, she, even after she raises the fact that she doesn't have a husband and he brings up the truth that she's had five, he just does so with this kind of kind gentleness that I think shows Jesus' heart. He seems to kind of focus on the one good thing he could find in that interaction where he, he kind of focuses on the fact that she spoke truthfully to him. He shows appreciation for her honesty instead of condemning her for her history. Um, but as he does that, though, she kind of gets a bit kind of nervous and she just kind of uh, changes subject, the old theological subject change. It's a great one. Well, we worship on this mountain, you Jews. Uh, I, know what you got. I know that you guys use that. I've used that before. Somebody will come up and they'll be like, oh, hey, how's your heart? How, what's God saying to you? Have you had much time in prayer this week? How many hours have you kind of spent reading your word? And then you'll kind of respond back like, oh, well, yeah, pretty good. But I'm kind of really more wrestling on whether or not I'm a pre-tribulation dispensational premillennialist, or I'm kind of more of a symbolic amillennial millennialist in my eschatology. I'm just, yeah, I'm really struggling with that. I've got to go. It's a great avoidance strategy, and we can use it all the time to not have to talk about what's actually going on in our heart, what God's actually challenging on us, us on and speaking to us about. But Jesus, he doesn't kind of push on her shame. He again meets her where she's at and he steers her from some debate about who's right and who's wrong and points to what God is doing in the future and who Jesus is. And he offers her truth and he offers her life and salvation. He is good to this woman because he is good. Amen? And so this morning as we are diving into God's word to look at the goodness of God, we just see it so clearly here in this interaction. We see that Jesus, he's not influenced by the world's view of anybody. He does not play our kind of hierarchical, kind of discriminating games at all. He goes out and he sends out an invitation to the most broken, to the most rejected. No one does not receive an invitation based on their background. Here we see a woman that, you know what, she has been kind of, her sin has been laid bare. She cannot hide her identity, her failures, her history, her sin. Jesus sees it all. And yet here we see, though, that she is fully known, but she is fully loved by Jesus. And there is a beautiful truth there in that. And this morning I want to say with 
all the authority of Scripture for you, likewise you, where you are at this morning, with your history, with your sin, with your shame, you are fully known and you are fully loved by Jesus. He loved you so much that he died on a cross to give you eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is all of our stories. We were all lost in sin. We were all dead in trespasses. Yet this same Jesus who engaged with this woman at the well, where she was at, meets us, meets you, where you are at right now. He doesn't kind of ignore our sin. He doesn't just pretend that it doesn't exist, but he invites us to the well to drink of his living water. He offers forgiveness. He offers salvation and a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit that springs up from within like living waters in our souls. And he does so because he's good. I want to ask you this morning, church, do you believe that? Do you really believe that in the deepest part of your soul? Or is there a corner of your heart that you think maybe is a bit too dark, too broken with trespasses and sins to truly be forgiven and cleansed and covered by the blood of Jesus? Because some of us here this morning will feel like that there's kind of the 90% of us that people know, but there's a dark 10% of us that we think that if anybody saw that, if anybody knew that, we would be completely unlikable and we would be completely unlovable if only they knew. We can subconsciously believe that at best God will just kind of tolerate us in his kingdom and that he doesn't really love us where we're at. He kind of loves some future version of us up in the future where we've finally sorted out all of our mess when we're finally better. But we need to know that because God is good, just like the woman at the well, we are fully known and we are fully loved by God. We need to abandon the lie that sometimes we can believe that we'll finally one day get our act together and then Jesus will meet us there. That he'll kind of just meet us and he'll burst into our life uh, when all our lives are clean and sorted out. But that is not the account of Scripture. That is not anyone's story. Have you guys met the person with that testimony? I'm still looking for them. I have not found the person with that story. He meets us where we are. He meets us at the well. And as we throw ourselves before him and say, Jesus, this is me. This is where I am. I need you. Change me. Guide me. Fill me with streams of living water. And in that moment of just meeting him where we're at, often we will find that we will commune with him in a real way. And that's where we start to see change in our lives. And that is what we all need this morning, isn't it? Amen. Okay, so that is the story. That is the interaction. um, And I think it's really clear how good God is in this text. But what do we do with this from here? Where do we take this this morning? How do we hear this story uh, and allow it to affect us? And I think that there's a few questions that we can ask ourselves uh, from this text and this meeting in John 4. And I think the first question that we should probably ask ourselves as God's people here this morning is... Are we conduits of God's goodness to the oppressed as well? Do we let that goodness flow through us? Because Jesus is good, we should be uh, the hands and the feet of Jesus in our generation, extending that goodness to others. 
We need to see things through the lens that Jesus sees through. Not the Jewish lens uh, that kind of saw the Samaritans as unlovable. Not our 21st century lens that sees things kind of through this kind of weird Western culture that we live in at the moment. Jesus loves to break down our cultural lenses. I think sometimes that might be why when he had the parable of the good Samaritan, he used a Samaritan in that example to show that Samaritans can truly be good as they extend the love of of God to others and to the oppressed. Our love to others should not be qualified on how worthy they are to receive it. I was reading through the book of James earlier this week and I was just so challenged again by what it says in chapter 2. In verse 1 to 4, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, oh, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, without being so religious about this text that it literally loses all meaning, let's ask ourselves, do we do this? Sure, we may not sit the poor man literally at our feet, but is there a part of our heart that shows more attention, more kind of favoritism, more hospitality or acceptance to those we think fit the molds that we personally like? That's incredibly challenging, isn't it? I hope I'm not the only one convicted by that. We need to be like Jesus, church. He loves the oppressed. He loves the outcast because he is good, and we should extend that as well. Secondly, I think a really great question uh, that we should ask ourselves is, do we share Jesus like this woman at the well? Um, One thing I love about this story is just her response uh, to Jesus leads to this testimony, which then leads to an investigation by the people who hear it, which then leads to salvation. Uh, and I think it's just a really beautiful, sim- beautifully kind of simple formula. Uh, the Samaritan woman kind of said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I mean, she wasn't some expert level evangelist all of a sudden. I mean, to be honest, she wasn't even really telling the truth. She was exaggerating. He didn't tell her everything she ever did. She wasn't the greatest evangelist in the world, but she didn't kind of go to them and pronounce that she had suddenly become some paragon of virtue and goodness. She didn't mount up on her high horse and tell them that they need to follow her because look what she's found. She simply told them the people that she had met the Messiah. That's all she did. Is that us this morning? Do we have that same excitement about Jesus just to go and share that we have encountered him? I think the simple act of telling others about the impact of Jesus on our lives is incredibly powerful. But If we go around just trying to kind of show our goodness to other people in order to get them over the line, that's not going to be enough. We've got to shine Jesus, who he is. Point them to the wonder of Jesus because his goodness is life-changing. When was the last time you told somebody who doesn't know Jesus just how incredible he is? How much he changed your life, that he gave you streams of living water that felt like life inside your soul when you first met him? That he gave you his spirit and a relationship with him? Guys, not everyone's going to come running uh, when you share that with them, and that's totally fine. 
You simply give them an invite, like you received an invite, and they can investigate for themselves. They can decide if they want to turn up. We don't drag them to the banquet. We just pass on the invite. And I mean, this woman, I mean, sometimes we can dismiss her. I'm not a good evangelist. I don't have a good story. I don't have all the answers. I mean, this woman, what did she have? She didn't have a good reputation or great theology or good works to hinge her testimony on. She just focused on telling them that she met Jesus and he could be the Messiah. I think sometimes we can simplify our outreach and do the same because it's quite beautiful. I think one of the third lessons that we can uh, take from this and a question we can ask ourselves as well is, do we truly believe that Jesus fully knows and fully loves us, like her? We're about to go into a time of uh, communion this morning. Um, And it can be really hard to go into and out of a time of communion where we're still kind of holding on to our sin or holding on to our shame. I just want to remind you all this morning, Nothing that you have done and nothing that you will do is a surprise to God. He knows it all. He knows every inclination and every intention of your heart, and yet he still sent you an invitation. While you were dead in sin, while you were lost in your trespasses, he knew what he was getting into, and he sent you an invitation. And he did that to you because he is good. But you can only stay at the banquet if you are wearing the right clothes. Uh, in that parable of the wedding banquet, those without the proper clothes weren't allowed to stay. I mean, I got kicked out of Jared and Olivia's wedding because I came with Crocs and a singlet. <laughs> it just makes sense. You've got to wear... No, I didn't really. Uh, you have to wear the right clothes. And what are the right clothes to stay at the banquet? I mean, we can get an invite, but if we want to stay, we need to be clothed in robes of righteousness. The thing is, he clothes us in those. He puts those clothes on our shoulders. He provides both the invite and the clothing to stay. Through his blood and his body, he purchased robes to wear as if that righteousness were our own, even though it isn't. And not just the 90%. It doesn't just cover the 90% that other people see. It covers the whole 100% of who you are in your best and your worst moments. There's this really beautiful prophecy in Isaiah 61 that I was reading through this week. And it just speaks, it speaks really well to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 and chapter 4. If you want to kind of spend some time in the Word this morning, I encourage you to read Isaiah 61 and also John chapter uh, 3 and 4. Uh, and, and in this prophecy, it talks about this new creation that God would work in the hearts of his people, making them priests of the Lord and ministers of God. And it points forward to what Jesus would be doing in that day and age, replacing shame and disgrace with joy. Uh, And the start of Isaiah 61 is great because it kind of points to the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, and how he would come and proclaim good news to the poor and set the captives free, uh, to set people at liberty, that he would kind of bind up the brokenhearted. I love it. It's beautiful. Uh, But then uh, it kind of, you skip forward 700 years and you see Jesus on the scene 700 years later, just doing exactly that with this woman at the well. Um, But in verse 10 uh, in Isaiah, Uh, 61, it says this, and I want to read it this morning. It says, I delight greatly in the Lord. 
My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is the story of the goodness of God for the woman at the well, broken and oppressed, but she is not identified that by that. She is not identified by her nationality, by her theological accuracy. She is not identified by her previous marriages. She is identified by Jesus as one invited to the living well. That's who she is. She's invited to wear a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness, and to be adorned like a true bride. And that is the story of the goodness of God for you this morning. Just like her, you're fully known and you are fully loved by God. You are no longer defined by your previous failures. You are robed and adorned by Jesus and what he did for you in the cross. And you have been given an invite If you trust in Jesus, if you trust in him, you are clothed in robes of righteousness and salvation. You are washed, and that is what we celebrate every time we drink the cup and we eat the bread. And that includes the worst 10%. And so this morning, as we celebrate God's goodness uh, in the full knowledge that no one is excluded from his love based on their history and and failures and backgrounds, that's what we are celebrating this morning, and that is worthy to be celebrated. Uh, And so before we close... uh, and we, we do communion, I think there's no better way to kind of finish on that, the truth of the gospel in this moment, than having a moment for ourselves to reflect on that. Uh, and so uh, take, uh, the stewards will come around in just a moment, take the bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus that is broken on the cross for you. And, and we will drink the cup together at the end and reflect on the blood of Jesus that has washed away all of your sin, that if accepted by faith, places a robe of righteousness on your shoulders. Um, so I might just get the team to come up and then we'll close in a final song after that. Lord, we thank you so much for the blood that you shed for us. Sometimes it just feels so wrong that we get to drink this cup and have all of our sins completely washed, uh, that you bore them for us and we walk away innocent. But Lord, help us again just rejoice in the gospel for all that it is that we, we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, but you give it freely and you invite us into that. Like we sang this morning, Lord, we thank you for the blood applied. We worship you for that, God. And and as we drink, we truly know that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink. Amen.